and talks about Israel. There you go. That's my title, and that's the curiosity factor that brings you all to hear what this strange guy has to say. Um, it has, it always is a pleasure and a privilege to come and, and visit you guys. Uh, I really do enjoy it. And a privilege also to just sit in on the Sunday school and hear the ministries, um, local ministries, Muslim ministries, worldwide ministries, the kingdom work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That just thrills my heart. And we're, we're a part of that. In actual fact, what I'm going to say um, which has relevance to Jewish mission, but it also has relevance to your local mission, a re relevance to Arab world ministries and missions as well. Uh, and so I trust that, uh, that the word will be applicable to that. Uh, let me just take three, four minutes just to uh, say a little bit, again, for those that perhaps don't know me or know our work, to say what we do, what we are, uh, and really commend to you just to, to take the literature that is on the table at the rear. Christian Witness to Israel has been telling Jewish people about Jesus for 175 years. Um, so we're, uh, we should be uh, reasonably uh, well-versed in knowing what we're doing. But like everyone else, we're still learning. Uh, and we still have a context in which to bring that message. And so on the one hand, we have a, a wonderful history and we can talk about men like Robert Murray McShane, who prayed the opening prayer at the first ever meeting of our organization in 1842 in London. And we can read these men and the wonderful truths that they bring to bear with regard to our duty to Israel. And our duty is simply to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. I think sometimes we, we get a little confused. What do we do about Israel? What, what is Israel? It's not just a piece of dirt. It's a people, around 13 million in the world, 13 to 14 million. 42% of them live here. So Christian witness to Israel is not a ministry that has a fascination with a, with a land, because the gospel may go into lands, but it is to be brought to people and to people groups, and our particular work is to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. It is Christian witness to Jewish people. And as I've said repeatedly, 42% of them live in the United States, and therefore we have a responsibility uh, to bring the gospel to Jewish people right here on our own doorstep. Um, this, I can't remember whether I had this with me last year because it is a little over a year that I've had it. But it's just a reminder, it's, it, uh, I'll not tell the whole story, take it and read it, uh, but it's a reminder that we must tell Jewish people about Jesus. I had an interaction with a Jewish rabbi in Israel by Skype in a church in Denver. There again, there's the craziness and the wonder of modern technology. But I basically ended by saying to the Jewish rabbi, your ancestors didn't leave us alone. This book is Jewish. The man in it is Jewish. The missionaries that brought it to us are Jewish. And I said to the rabbi, you didn't leave us alone, us Gentiles. Your ancestors wanted us to know the God of Israel, and here we are. And I simply promised him, I will not leave you alone. And uh, indeed, at the, at the end of the conference, uh, I didn't say this to the rabbi, but I said it at the church, and maybe I was getting a little carried away. 
but I put on my Liam Neeson accent and I said, I will find you <laughs> and, uh, and I will tell you about Jesus. <laughs> That's our calling, friends, to the Jewish people, to find them. That's a calling to everyone, isn't it? And tell them about Jesus. Our new size, Herald Magazine, will tell lots of stories about our missionaries telling Jewish people about Jesus. Please do take uh, the magazine and hear wonderful stories, not only of telling Jewish people, but of Jewish people hearing and receiving. We heard this morning a story of a Muslim coming to faith. It thrills our hearts. Uh, and, and so let's share these stories and get excited and get prayerful for Muslim mission, Jewish mission, Georgia, Tennessee mission, wherever it may be. We want to tell Jewish people, we want to tell the world this gospel message. We must not leave them alone. One other point that I'm just come to mind and I want you to pray for. Um, my work is teaching, preaching in churches and stirring the hearts, raising prayer and obviously support for this ministry. Uh, and I, I, I seek your interest and your prayers and indeed uh, your dollar. Let's, let's, let's be blunt about this. We need that to move forward. Uh, one of the things that's exciting in my work um, is that I've been not only laying a foundation and a theological foundation and an instructive foundation in many churches across the U.S., but also raising up missionaries, uh, in a sense, local missionaries. In other words, you are going out of here, and, and you may have a Jewish friend or a Jewish doctor, dentist, lawyer, um, and you need to be assisted or prompted to approach that Jewish person and tell them, here's your Messiah. It's, it's clear in the Word that your Messiah has come. We want to show your Messiah to you. So I am a, calling the church to be the church in that respect to our Jewish neighbors, but also to raise up missionaries. And uh, I, I'm thrilled to report this time with you that God willing, well, there are a couple of things that we, a couple of hurdles we need to get over, but God willing, perhaps this fall, we may have two missionaries in place, one in Chicago and one in Pittsburgh. One of them is waiting for a visa from U.S. immigration, so please pray for that. I have been told that uh, visas are notoriously difficult. I indeed have uh, had my own issues uh, on that front, and those who know me and know my history will know that. So pray for Eugene from Taiwan, who, God willing, will come to Chicago and be our missionary there. Uh, and another brother who has applied to CWI to be a missionary, he is a Jewish believer, uh, over 40 years a Jewish believer. And uh, he currently is in process. Uh, he is, has applied to our ministry, and uh, he will be interviewed very shortly. In fact, he is going on our Paris outreach. If you take the magazine, please pray for our Paris outreach in about two weeks' time. Uh, lots of our European missionaries will be on the streets of Paris telling Jewish people and others uh, about Jesus. Israel has the largest Jewish population in the world. 45% of the world's Jewish population lives in Israel. 42% of the world's Jewish population lives in the U.S. Number three is France, with a half a million Jewish people living in France and 250,000 in Paris. So please pray for our Paris outreach and pray for my brother from Pittsburgh, who is going to be with our other missionaries in Paris 
uh, and we pray that indeed all his processes and his, uh, even his interview may go well, uh, and I hope and trust I will have another worker uh, in Pittsburgh in the not-too-distant future. Well, all of that being said, please pray for us, please take the literature, and continue to pray for us throughout the year. I really, like the others, I appreciate your interest in what we do. But let's turn to God's Word and read in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I was talking with Dan about what would be appropriate. I had a couple of, of options, and he told me what his summer series was, and uh, uh, he, it was his suggestion that this may tie in somewhat with, uh, with your summer series, uh, but also, obviously, it has uh, good relevance for Jewish ministry, and indeed all our, our ministries. But let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, actually we'll read from verse 1 through to verse 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though not for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. May God bless to us the reading of his word. One of the most famous sermons in U.S. history is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know if you have heard of that sermon by Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if you have read it or if you know some of the content, um, but it is kind of that one uh, sermon that, that has something of fame, even perhaps just the title, Sinners in the Hands of of an angry God. But the concept of that is so foreign to our world today. To address people as sinners, well, that's, that's a greater sin in itself than the sin that they so obviously are committing. To express the idea that God is angry, well, it's not just Joel Osteen that has a problem with that. <laughs> I, I, I have to mention Joel Osteen at least five times in the sermon. 
I need to back that. When I was last with you, <laughs> I got to tell it. When I was last with you, it was a joy to have some fellowship. At lunch afterwards, I have to apologize that we are rushing off after the service. We're not stopping for lunch. We're going to drive all the way back. My wife and I driving all the way back to Arkansas tonight, God willing. Um, but uh, last time we stayed for lunch, and we had a wonderful meeting in Panera Bread, and uh, it, was, it was almost like an extra CWI meeting that I had in Panera Bread. I don't think I've ever done that before. But at, at the end of that lunch, I was uh, gifted um, Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen, and uh, um, make a donation to CWI, and I'll tell you who gave it to me. <laughs> um, but I read the book. I read the book. Um, and the sad reality is that that mindset has infected us more than we care to think. God is angry? Yes. Yes. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, I want to come and talk about the mercy of God, the amazing mercy. But it's only mercy because we don't deserve it because God is really angry with sinners. But I want to backtrack just a couple of verses, if you would turn back with me to, to Romans chapter 10. Uh, and I really want to take just a couple of verses, Romans 10 and Romans 11, to springboard into our thoughts in 1 Peter. But in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's all about Jewish mission. It's, it's applicable to all of us, but it's particularly Romans 9, 10, and 11 is about Jewish mission. And at the end of Romans 10, verse 21, um, the apostle, the Jewish apostle says, of Israel, he says, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary or obstinate people. In other words, the Jewish people are not getting into heaven by some back door, as some televangelists might want you to believe. This is the reality. All day long I have held… Now, the fact that God holds out His hands shows His love and His, His mercy, but He is holding out His hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But then the verse I want to really to… to focus on that then springboards into the first Peter on mercy is Romans 11 verse 31. Romans 11 verse 31 says that they too, the Jewish people, they have now been disobedient in order that you Gentiles might get it, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. Now, let's get that verse and let it really sink down. In other words, they missed it, their disobedience. You got it, not because you were so much better than they and so much smarter than… No, because of God's mercy and grace to the goyim, the unclean. But it's not all over yet. They have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. In other words, it is exemplified mercy in us that must be displayed to the world, and in our particular context, 
to the Jewish people. The exemplification of God's mercy to this sinner is what is our Christian witness to Israel. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, largely, as Paul was largely the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's writing this letter largely to a Jewish audience, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. These are Jewish people that have been dispersed from the Holy Land, and they have moved out, particularly at the time of the Nero persecutions, and indeed the fall of the Jerusalem and the fall of the temple. And so they have escaped. These are the elect exiles. And of course, there would be Gentiles in among it as well. But Peter is saying to them, these Christian Jews, these Christian Hebrews, you are to show mercy to your non-believing Jewish friends because you have received mercy. Peter is believed to have been martyred uh, in A.D. 67. And those of you who know the fall of Jerusalem and the, uh, the, the war was 66 to 70. And so it's right around that time that he is, he is writing and telling these who have escaped that Holocaust, think on the stunning mercy of God and go and, and exemplify it to your Jewish friends, to your Gentile friends. And again, we need just by way of context and, and introduction, we need to remind ourselves that this is early, early church. The church was largely Jewish. This is like 30 years perhaps after the death of our Savior. And they are desiring to live in the midst of unbelieving Israel, in the midst of obstinate Israel. They're endeavoring to live, exemplifying the mercy they've received from their Messiah, even Jesus. So all this to say, this is a, an appropriate passage for us involved in Jewish mission, and it's really appropriate for Arab mission, it's appropriate for world mission, it's appropriate for local church mission. Uh, but as we look at these things, um, I, I want us to look at this mercy of the Messiah under the three headings. First of all, I want us to see the method of this mercy. Then I want us to look at the magnitude of this mercy. And finally, I want us to look at the mission of this mercy. First of all, the method. How does this mercy come to us? What is the, the method of God's mercy? Well, we read it there in verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused... Something has been caused to happen. There is a, a methodology, and he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, the method, the causal, is the death and the life of the Messiah himself. We don't believe in cheap grace. We don't believe in cheap mercy. This is not a 
coin in the coffer rings the soul from purgatory springs kind of mercy. This is not a sign the card, pray the prayer, walk the aisle. This is not God winking at mercy. There is a method to God's amazing mercy. The method is, the, according to, is death. Death. The death of Jesus, the Son of God. Let's remember again, backtrack, think of Jewish religion prior to Peter writing this. Jewish religion was a religion that stank of death. From, well, from the first moments in the garden, our first parents needed to get covered. The fig leaves don't do it. They needed a covering. They needed an animal to be slain, and God provided them covering. And that was just symbolic all the way through. Animals had to die in a temporary way until the one, dare I say it, cursed animal, the beloved Son of God, the death of Jesus. So Judaism was, was always a blood-drenched death-smelling religion. Their eyes would see death. Their ears would hear death. Their lips would speak death. Their nose would, would smell death. Their hands would touch death. It was tangibly, it was sensually death in every aspect of Jewish religion. But Peter, Peter's now declaring something. On the day of Pentecost, indeed, he declared it back in Acts chapter 2. He declared then, as he declares in this letter, the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. And so this mercy, the method of the mercy, is because of the death and the resurrection. The death of death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people ask me, do the Jewish people still sacrifice? No, they don't. They can't. They don't have a temple since A.D. 70. They don't have any ability to, to sacrifice. Now, some, some of the more extreme do still sacrifice chickens on the Day of Atonement. Um, I think at least there is an honest recognition among some that without the shedding of blood... There is no remission for sins, Leviticus. And so just some of them are being honest, but largely the Jewish rabbis have reinterpreted that passage. And they will say, no, you don't need blood anymore. Don't worry, be happy. And they will just say, well, Psalm 51 verse 17 says this, and they're very clever. They say, Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise, O God. Oh, wonderful. Oh, we just need to be, we just kind of have a Jewish penance. We just kind of have to feel a little bit sorry uh, and maybe pay your dues and uh, maybe also just to put in a, a, a few extra dollar at the 10 days of awe before Yom Kippur, before the Day of Atonement. But the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. And Jewish people today are hearing that rabbinic teaching, that rabbinic reinterpretation, really, because Leviticus says, without the shedding of blood, 
There is no remission for sin. But the rabbis are saying, no, it's okay. We don't need that anymore. Well, okay, well, what part of the Bible do we not need anymore? Do we just get rid of all of that? Only in a, only in a context where blood finally was shed in the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people don't believe that. So what have they got by way of atonement? They don't have a covering, an atonement. Now, Psalm 51, the Jewish rabbis will say that, but actually, if they continue to read Psalm 51, they realize that a couple of verses later, it talks about right sacrifices and bulls offered on your altar. In other words, it needs to be a heart thing, but in the context of Old Testament religion, it also needs blood, temporary as it is. It also needs blood, but they haven't got it. So our Jewish friends do not have a covering. They don't have atonement. And we must tell them of the method of God's mercy is through the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, their Messiah, our Messiah. His name is Jesus. The method of the mercy is death and life. There was an old, and I may not get the story exactly right, but there's a story of a, an illiterate guy who was being interviewed for membership at, uh, at a Scots Presbyterian church. And of course, they were asking him, do you understand repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a due sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God doth turn from it with, with full uh, appreciation of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the catechism. And, and, and he, this illiterate guy is just looking at them. <laughs> I, I, I don't know all that. But have you not realized the, the substitutionary atonement of the, and, and all the doctrine? All I know, he die, I no die. He no die, I die. And those sober Scots Presbyterians welcomed him into membership. He die, I know die. That's it. There's the method of this mercy, the death and the resurrection. The death of death. The crushing the serpent's head. And so now, my dear friends, now sinners in the hands of an angry God can be saved sinners in the hands of a merciful God. The method of the mercy, secondly, I want us to note the magnitude of the mercy. The magnitude of the mercy comes to us again in these verses. Under a couple of headings, I want us to think of it in the general sense and then in the specifics. General sense, verse 3 says, it is a great mercy. According to his great mercy, I am a great sinner. But God is a great Savior. There's the sinner's prayer right there. The greatness of the mercy is measured by the greatness of my debt. And my debt is infinite. Because I have offended an infinitely holy God. So how can I pay? How can the blood of bulls pay? It's imperfect. It's temporal. But the infinite God. The infinite God-man can pay because it is 
a great mercy in its general sense. Some of you who have commentaries on 1 Peter, I could commend to you the commentary by John Brown on 1 Peter, John Brown, minister of Edinburgh in the early 1800s, and uh, excellent, excellent commentary. He says this, think on the nature of the blessings. We're going to look at that in a moment as we think of the magnitude and the specifics. He says, think on the nature of the blessings. Think on the character on whom they are bestowed. And think on the means through which the blessings are communicated. Well, the means is death. Think of the blessings, the nature of them. Think of the character on those whom, on whom the, the, the blessings are bestowed. And think on the means through which these blessings are communicated. Parallel passage to 1 Peter is Ephesians 2. Some of you may know that passage, Ephesians 2, where it speaks of God being rich in mercy. And uh, he's rich in mercy upon whom? I, I remember preaching a sermon on Ephesians 2, and my three headings were dead, devilish, and disobedient. That's, that's, your con that's my condition. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You followed the, the ways of the kingdom, uh, the evil one, devilish, and you're disobedient. But God, rich in mercy, made us alive and raised us with Christ. And so this is, again, the similar passage. In the magnitude of the mercy, it is a great mercy upon us as we are unworthy and we are condemned sinners. It is great in the general sense. It is glorious in the specific sense. Well, let, let's walk through some of the specifics and Again, just very briefly, but the specifics are new birth. He has caused us to be born again. This mercy, the greatness of it, is that it makes us new creatures. We are born again. Now, sometimes, and again, if we're talking with Jewish people, and maybe even talking with, with Gentiles sometimes, this kind of new birth thing, this born again, well, that's that... Uh, that's kind of sect-ish, isn't it? We were uh, recently uh, in, uh, in Portugal, and uh, we actually chatted with a waitress at a restaurant in Portugal, and of course, Portugal and, and Spain. My, my son lives in Spain, married to a Spanish girl, and uh, so we, we, had, we visited. We had a couple of days just in Portugal, and, and what really struck her also was the way Roman Catholicism had, was so ingrained into the culture that evangelicalism was deemed a sect. And, and so the kind of new birth or being born again, that's, that's kind of, that's just like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and that's kind of sectish. New birth is Jewish. If you read Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36 promises a sprinkling, the giving of a new heart, uh, the, the, the giving of a new spirit within uh, and the, the causing to walk in the statutes of God. That's in Ezekiel 36. And that's why when Jesus was having the, the back and forth with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, he didn't get it. He, he's what, new birth, born again, back in my mother's womb. No, said Jesus. Hey, Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher you don't know these things? Remember Jesus really 
Went into him on that, but and why? Because you should know Ezekiel 36 talks about being born again. Ezekiel, you should know Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 talks about a new covenant with the house of Israel and being moved to follow the laws of God. Being born again is a Jewish thing. And that's exactly what Peter preached to his Jewish friends on Acts 2, day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost wasn't the birthday of the church. The church was in Genesis. But on the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival, all the Jews from Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, they had all gathered together the day of Pentecost, and Peter preaches Jesus as the Messiah and tells them they've got to be born again. My Jewish friends, you've got to be born again. My Gentile friends, my friends here, you must be born again. And the magnitude of this mercy as it comes to us, as it impacts us, as we understand it's through the death of Jesus, we realize he brings us a new birth. You know, I think sometimes we, again, just have this sense of, well, don't worry, be happy and just feel good. What I want us to see in these things, and even this is kind of what I was talking with Dan about, and hopefully it ties in somewhat with some of his preaching as well, Sometimes we simply go on our feelings. Well, I don't feel really good very much today. If I can put it in a technical sense, the indicatives drive the imperatives. In other words, what we are will drive how we ought to be. It's not how I feel. It's not just about feeling. It's about the facts. And when the facts grip us, and when we realize that God in his mercy came to this sinner in the hands of an angry God, but instead, by the death of his son, brought mercy, brought, brought a, a new birth and a living hope, a living hope, the hope of the gospel, the shalom. Jewish people are longing for shalom. That's, that's, if you ask Jewish people, that's what they want. They want world peace. They want, they want just wellness. They even perhaps just want to be left alone. They want shalom, but here is shalom. Here is where it's found, this, this living hope, the hope of the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is not the power of positive thinking. Sorry, Joel Osteen. It's not, the, it's not just this power of getting to get into your head and just think happy thoughts. This is a living, this is a real, lively, living hope in a living Savior. This is reality that he has brought to us sinners. Mercy in the magnitude as it identifies here. Jewish people in the 1930s in Germany lived in the hope that they could be good Germans. They loved Germany. They loved German art. They loved German music. They loved German culture. They hoped that Germany would never expel them. They hoped they could have their best life now. They didn't see the ugly, diabolical, demon-possessed hatred that was coming from Hitler and his henchmen, and their hopes turned to Holocaust. And, and for many Jewish people today, God died then. And when we're engaging with Jewish people, 70, 80% of them are, are agnostic or atheists. They're not religious, most of them. They don't believe in God. God died 
If God was God, we would not have gone to the fires of the Holocaust. Well, if you know your Bible, and if they know their Bible, they will know there will be many Holocausts. Think of Jeremiah. Think of Jeremiah in 587 B.C., when the Babylonians overrun Jerusalem and there was cannibalism and there was death and there was destruction on the streets. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he wept until there was no, no moisture left for him to cry. Jeremiah then wrote his lamentations. We can't tell Jeremiah, don't worry, think, think happy thoughts, be positive. And, uh, you know, just... You can really have your best life now. Don't worry, be happy. We can't tell Jeremiah that. We can't tell our Jewish neighbors that post-Holocaust. We need something better. We need to tell of this mercy, this, this real mercy, this real new birth, this living hope, and this inheritance, this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. When the Jewish people fled in the 1930s, 1940s, they carried their diamonds and their gold with them and often gave diamonds for a piece of bread. And all gold and silver and financial security will rot away. And indeed, dare I say it to us, in our comforts, all our comforts and all our financial security will one day rot away. We die. We die empty-handed. There was a story of Alexander the Great. And he said to his, the folks who would bury him, he said, I want to be buried with my hands outside the coffin. It sounds pretty gruesome. But he told his folks, bury me with my hands outside the coffin because I want everyone to see that my hands are empty when I die. But here, the mercy, as it comes to us, we have a new birth, we have a living hope, we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us. Again, all of us try to hold on to things. Some more than others. And we were talking last night about, uh, about my wife and I and how we compliment each other. And one of us is a hoarder and one isn't. And I'm tempted to uh, explain who is and who isn't. But again, I'll, I'll make a donation. I'll, I'll tell you who is. Um, <laughs> we hoard things. You know, it's fascinating to read the story, and this is kind of a little bit of an aside, but when the Jewish people were getting kicked out of every country in Europe, go back even hundreds of years to the Spanish Inquisition, they were getting kicked out of Spain, they were getting kicked out of Portugal, and then they came to the New World, and they, were, they, they made their home in Brazil, and then they started to get kicked out of Brazil because Portugal took over Brazil, and it was Catholic, and they were then sent back to, New Am or to, to Amsterdam, to Holland, which was a happy home, and they made their way instead to New Amsterdam, and they came, became the first Jewish community in New Amsterdam, which then became New York. And it's a fascinating story. But when the Jewish people came from there, and they came from Germany, and they came from Eastern Europe, they brought portable wealth. That's one thing as I've been reading a little bit and uh, doing a little bit of study on how the Jewish people came to the U.S. of A. And, and they came bringing portable wealth. And in their minds, portable wealth is education. 
And so they got their kids educated, and they got their kids educated, and they became the lawyers and the doctors and the dentists and, and the financiers. But they're still living in pursuit of life, liberty, and Jewishness. And we want to tell them about an unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for them. That comes to them through the mercy of their Messiah, even Jesus. The Jewish people have longed for shalom, and they've longed for a land of shalom. And we can understand that. And when they're getting kicked out of every country, they want to find a country that they'll not get kicked out of. And so they, they made their way to Israel, or they made their way to America. And, and so 88% of the Jewish population live in those two countries, which are pretty good areas for Jewish people to live in. But we want to tell them about another land. The land is not enough. I think that was a James Bond movie. But the land is not enough for Jewish people. We want to tell them about another land. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of it. The writer to the Hebrews speaks of it. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Oh, tell our Jewish friends this. Don't leave them in Israel and say, okay, we've got to pay money, get them all back to the land, and that's great. The land is not enough. The magnitude of this mercy and all its specifics is, is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign and infinite day excludes the night and pleasures banish pain, even the pain of a holocaust. This is, this is the gospel that we're bringing to our Jewish friends. Well, I must move on to my final point. We've looked at the method of the mercy, the magnitude of the mercy. Let's look at the mission, the mission of the mercy. First of all, subheading one, protection unto perseverance. Protection unto perseverance. That's what God is doing in his mission of mercy. From being sinners in the hands of a holy God, through the mercy you become saved sinners in the hands of a holy God, but you are protected unto your perseverance. And where do I get that? Well, we read it in verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded. You're being guarded. And when I read of our persecuted brothers or those that are in prison for the faith, they are being guarded by God. And those who harm the Lord's people need to be mindful. This word says, touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. What an awful thing for those countries who are holding the Lord's people in prison. Touch not mine anointed. But as they know, even in a prison cell, they are being guarded. They're being guarded by God himself. I remember when uh, Bill Clinton visited Belfast some years ago, quite a number of years ago, and my mother and her sister went up to, uh, we lived in uh, Bangor, 12, 15 miles east of Belfast, and uh, my mom and sister went up to visit and uh, to catch a sight of the president. And uh, uh, I think I was maybe doing something more important that day. I can't remember. But, 
I, I didn't go, but my, my mom tells the story, and she said, oh, we, we uh, it's the usual Ulster bluntness, but my, my mom, she, she asked, of course, the president is surrounded by the men in black, and the you know, the, 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 the man really without humanity. <laughs> they, they, they're just standing there and they're, they've got the dark glasses and, and they're, they're the henchmen. And my mom went and she, she nudged one of them and said, what would you do if, if, uh, if I ran through there to the president? Would you arrest me? And uh, he looked at her and said, no, ma'am. I would not arrest you. I would just have to shoot you. <laughs> because he's being guarded. He is garrisoned. And I want us to realize that, my friends, whatever your trials, you are being guarded by God Almighty. Remember Jesus in the upper room? We're going to have, we're going to have that image of the upper room. Jesus in the upper room, when he's about to die, what does he pray for? He says, I'm not praying for the world. Isn't that interesting? I'm not praying for the world, he says. Father, I'm not praying for the, I'm praying for those you've given me. I'm, I'm leaving them. And I'm praying for those, protect them. To have the Son of God on the night when he's going to his death, for mercy's sake, to be praying for your protection. Wow. The mission of this mercy is the protection of the saints of God unto a perseverance. And I love the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints because it is the perseverance of God with sinning saints. It's God persevering with me. And the mission of this mercy is protecting and persevering with a stubborn and obstinate people. First heading, the mission, protection unto perseverance. Secondly, promotion unto perfection. Promotion unto perfection. Where do I get that? Well, verse 5 again. Guarded through faith for a salvation. For a salvation ready to be revealed. And verse 9, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. You see, this mercy, the, the, the method of this mercy, the magnitude of this mercy, and the mission of this mercy is not just to wink at sin and say, don't worry, be happy, it's okay. Just have a little bit of Protestant penance. No, this, this mercy deals with sin and deals with the eradication of our old nature by a new birth and promoting within us the very perfections of Jesus. Not in this life but the, the, the promotion of it until one day we shall see him because we shall be like him. I'm sorry, Joel Osteen, you can't give us that with a smiley outlook on life. The only thing that brings the true smile, the only thing that brings that inner wholeness and wellness and shalom is the salvation of this soul. When this sinner in the merciful, protecting, preserving hands of a holy God is brought through the last enemy, which is death. And because he died, I know die. And as Job said, in my flesh, I shall see God. Final subheading. 
The mission of mercy is happiness unto holiness. Verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. Well, surely, surely we do. In this you rejoice. In a sense, don't misquote me, but in a sense you can have your best life now. Because in this you rejoice. Jesus has said he has come that we might have life abundant. And verse 8 says, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. We're receiving, we're receiving, we're receiving the salvation of our souls. And so I'm actually being molded in the hands of a holy God. And so my holiness is my happiness, and my happiness is my holiness. And that's the gospel that we want to share. Street evangelism, which we heard in Sunday School R. North Africa mission, which we heard in the Sunday School R. Jewish mission. That's the gospel that we want to share. One final story, and then I'm done. We had a Holocaust survivor outreach event in one of our churches or the church we're connected with in Israel. My colleagues were there and they were preaching the word. And there was 112 Holocaust survivors were in the church. 112 Jewish Holocaust survivors. They're dying every month. They're in their 90s. But 112 of them were in the church. My brother, my colleague, David Zadok, he preached the word. And they were joined at that church service by 75 Chinese people who had come over and brought them gifts, tea, Chinese tea and teapots. And there were tears. Because David, David Zadok, actually his Hebrew name really means David the Righteous. <laughs> David Zadok, David Zadok preached Jesus to his Israeli Jewish friends, Holocaust survivors, and they heard the love of Jesus Christ. This is what we want to share with the Holocaust survivors, with our Jewish friends that have given us this, and we want to pay it back. No, we will not leave them alone. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For